You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, James Chalmers talks Mabel Chu through the steps in treating a non-responding, presumed lower respiratory tract infection. So the natural course of a lower respiratory tract infection is that you will have symptoms for a median of three weeks, which is, a, which is surprising to a lot of patients who think that they're just going to get better in a week. But before that... The Health and Social Care Bill for England has now reached the House of Lords. With the proposed demise of deaneries, questions still remain about how medical training will be carried out in the future. The General Medical Council will play a role in this and in other future postgraduate education. So earlier this month, Helen Jakes went to talk to their Chief Executive, Neil Dixon. Neil, education and training is facing lots of changes in the UK. In particular, employers are going to take over a lot of the roles of deaneries. How's the GMC going to make sure that employers take this responsibility for education as seriously as they do service provision? Well, we're not a, we're not a system regulator in the uh, traditional sense. That's the job of uh, CQC. But we do have a responsibility for the uh, standards of education that are provided. And we will take steps and we will encourage deaneries to take steps where we believe that trainees are not being supported as they should be or not being given the education uh, that, that they require or where they're being given responsibilities which they are not ready to meet. So I don't think anybody should be in any doubt that we will take action where these things are brought to our attention and we will support deaneries in, in doing so. I think behind your question also lies the, the longer term future and we have expressed some concern at the government's initial proposals to create um, something that's more employer-led at local level. And our concern is that we do believe there needs to be a, a local education champion. We do see the deaneries in that role and we want to encourage them in that role. We recognise that even the, the deaneries as they're currently set up obviously have to take account of the service pressures which they find at the local situation. We're not talking about people living in ivory towers, um, but they have a duty and we have a duty to make sure that they do this, that they ensure that uh, trainees are, are properly protected. And in any new arrangements, we need to see that those principles are still upheld and that we have somebody at local level who is accountable to us for ensuring that those standards are maintained. That the workforce white paper, the implication seems to be that deaneries are going to evaporate completely and these local education training boards, sort of basically employers, are going to be providing education. I mean, is, does this mean your role is going to switch to almost regulating employers, given that employers will be the, the providers in this new world? Or are you envisaging that sort of some of the deanery staff and deans in this kind of level are still going to stick around? I think the honest answer is I don't know exactly how it's going to pan out, um, but I I very much hope um, that there will be an educational figure and organisation at local level whose remit is to ensure that educational standards are maintained. And certainly in England, for example, we will want to work with the new Health Education England, and we hope that they will adopt GMC standards, which are the standards that will have to be met in a statutory sense, uh, and that we need to work very closely with HEE. Um, and uh, one of the ideas we certainly had discussed was that we would jointly with HEE uh, appoint uh, the whoever it was at, at local uh, level in order to um, 
ensure that those educational standards were, were put in place. But I think we're still uh, at a very early stage in understanding exactly how all this will work out. Um, I am reasonably confident that with goodwill on all sides we can find a way through this, but the principles we've set down I think are pretty clear. And uh, sort of continuing on uh, medical education, um, you recently ran a consultation on professional exams which, in which sort of respondents are pretty divided on things like the number of attempts a doctor could have an exam and sort of how long a pass would be valid. I mean, what's the next step for your sort of review of professional exams? Well, the next step is we've asked the Academy to go away and uh, think this thing through and report back by uh, at the end of this year. Um, on on the two uh, um, issues that we've been discussing, w- one is around uh, numbers of attempts of exams and the other is about timing of exams. Um, I very much hope we'll reach a sensible solution on this. Um, I don't think we've made much of a secret of our view that infinite number of attempts is not a credible position for the profession. It's not something the public would really or patients would understand. Uh, but and, and I'm sure that whatever limits might be set by us as the regulator, colleges may want to set something tighter, as it were, that suits their own uh, particular uh, circumstances. And then uh, moving on to, to the next thing for, for qualified doctors, revalidation. So I was just w- wondering if you perhaps give a quick update of, to where we are now with revalidation. I mean, what's the, the timeline for the introduction and rollout of revalidation? Well, we're still um, heading towards what we hope will be the beginning of the rollout, which is late late 2012, towards the end of next year. That is subject to the Secretary of State um, in the UK government switching on the legislation. Um, and we are um, confident that uh, we will have in place within the GMC the necessary administrative uh, arrangements to enable that to happen. Uh, We're also uh, confident, I think, that uh, there will be around the UK uh, the necessary level of clinical governance in place to enable this thing to start. But we recognise that there's still some way to go in that. And even by late 2012, I don't think we're expecting perfection throughout the whole system, and it won't be everybody goes at one go at some big bang uh, process. Um, So I think... um, Some of the detail of this will start to emerge. I think the pattern that I hope, you know, uh, doctors will see over the uh, next few months and over the the next year will be uh, more information for them, absolute clarity about what it is they are required to do in order to get themselves into a position uh, where they are ready for revalidation uh, and also access to support where uh, where that is support is needed in order to do that and for organizations themselves and there's a great deal of activity i think going on throughout the service and, and really encouragingly um, we'll also be providing more support for responsible officers mostly medical directors uh, through our team of employment liaison advisors that we now have uh, or very shortly will have in place throughout the country and their job will be um, to support uh, medical directors and responsible officers uh, in, in the work that they'll have to do in, in order to make sure that the system works effectively. And Helen's article with more from that interview is available on the BMJ Careers website and in print this week. Now, Mabel Chu talks the author of the latest Rational Testing article. 
I have with me Dr James Chalmers, who's from the Department of Respiratory Medicine at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. James, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And you're going to be talking to us today about how GPs might investigate the non-responding uh, presumed lower respiratory tract infection. So the patient who's been prescribed antibiotics for a presumed lower respiratory tract infection, but comes back a week or two later and says, you know what, I'm still no better and I'm still feeling lousy. James, clinically, how would you define a a lower respiratory tract infection on on clinical grounds? This is a very difficult question and a lot of articles have been written about just this point. Uh, Most most of the more recent articles talk about acute cough or uh, cough with purulent sputum rather than talking about lower respiratory tract infection because the implication of lower respiratory tract infection is that it's an infection that requires an antibiotic treatment. So the the sort of patients we're talking about are patients who have acute cough. So they present to a GP with acute, as in over a period of a few weeks, respiratory symptoms such as breathlessness, cough, discoloured or clear sputum, uh, perhaps wheeze, and the symptoms that go along with that. So that so that could be due to an infection, or it can be due to other things, as we'll maybe discuss a bit later on. So it can be due to, for example, asthma or obstructive airways disease. So taking the case of somebody who presents for the second time with cough, they may have had um, a cough one or two weeks um, prior to this and been prescribed antibiotics because they had purulent sputum and some fever, um, but aren't terribly unwell and aren't smokers or have any other comorbidities. Would you like to make any comments about the next step, James? So this is a really common problem is the first thing to say. So we know that about a quarter of people who are prescribed an antibiotic initially will come back. The priority in this situation, first and foremost, is to make sure that the patient doesn't have a severe pneumonia that's not responding. And we think about lower respiratory tract infection in primary care as like a pyramid with the, that, that sort of very severe patient, which GPs are very good at identifying very much at the top, and a much larger group at the bottom who have just a low respiratory tract infection or acute cough, as it's called. Um, so the priority here really is, is good quality communication with the patient, limiting investigations to those situations where you're thinking about another diagnosis whether you're thinking about this, could this be a malignancy? So the first step is the clinical assessment. What are the alarm signs and symptoms that we ought to be looking for to exclude a serious infection? When we talk about clinical assessment, we're not talking about laboratory investigations or doing a chest x-ray. It's simple clinical examination. It's taking a history, listening to the patient's symptoms. It's performing a physical examination. And if it's available within the practice, pulse oximetry can be quite helpful. If you're thinking that the patient might have a pneumonia, the British Thoracic Society give a list of of, uh, signs and symptoms that they say should necessitate uh, hospital admission. So those are the CRB65 score. Some studies have suggested other signs that that give you a pointer to this patient might have a pneumonia. Uh, For example, if you hear crackles when you listen to the chest or there's decreased breath sounds, or they have a short duration of symptoms and an absence of of upper respiratory tract symptoms like sore throat and runny nose. These are thought to be 
pointers towards this could be a, a pneumonia rather than the more common acute bronchitis or upper respiratory tract infection. So those are the sorts of things that, that we say uh, these, you should have a think about doing more investigations or considering admitting these patients to hospital. Okay, so that's been a, a thorough rundown on what we ought to do clinically. Let's talk about investigations. Um, what about the role of the chest X-ray? So the times when I would do a chest X-ray are if I'm thinking about another diagnosis or I'm worried that the patient's got a, a complication. So if I've got a if I've got a smoker or somebody who has significant weight loss or a duration of symptoms that's longer than I I think is consistent with lower respiratory tract infection, I'd do an X-ray looking for malignancy. If I see symptoms that don't fit with a simple bronchitis like hemoptysis or severe pleuritic chest pain, or I examine the patient and there's dullness percussion at one of the bases, I think there could be a pleural effusion, something like that. That's a situation when I think a chest X-ray is really important. If you're just concerned that this is a lower respiratory tract infection, a typical bacterial lower respiratory tract infection or a viral infection, differentiating between pneumonia and not pneumonia when they've already had an antibiotic is not that useful. Should we be doing sputum cultures at all? I was taught that they didn't add very much. Any role for sputum cultures still? A very limited role, I would say. So I think what you were taught at university is absolutely right. Where sputum culture, I think, is useful is people who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or bronchiectasis. So these patients will often grow uh, pathogens in their sputum, sometimes even when they're well. And some of these organisms will be resistant to antibiotics, which isn't the case for the, for the majority of people. So in the majority of cases, don't do sputum culture. Mm. And I guess the other... Um group for whom we ought to be at least getting a sputum sample for examination uh, would be those uh, who might have risk factors for tuberculosis. Again, this is unlikely to be a concern for the majority of patients, but if you have a patient who has obvious risk factors, that's when I think about it. In the majority of patients, you don't need to worry about tuberculosis. And what about the newer tests like the urine antigen test for streptococcus pneumoniae? Urinary antigen testing is only available for streptococcus pneumoniae and Legionella uh, pneumophila. In our case, we've given this patient an antibiotic that's effective against strep pneumoniae. So a urinary antigen test, it's likely to be positive if they've got streptococcus infection, but you've already treated that appropriately. So it's not going to help you very much. And Legionella in the UK in primary care is very, very unlikely. Um, the, the other uh, tests that some doctors might be tempted to do would be blood counts and biochemistry or um, inflammatory markers. Uh, would you like to comment on the role of those? Uh, certainly. They, these, are, these are much more frequently done, I think, than the other tests that we've been talking about. I think the majority of GPs don't do a lot of microbiology testing. Uh, there is a role for testing, for example, urea and electrolytes, if you're particularly worried that a patient's dehydrated. In terms of inflammatory markers that you mentioned, the white blood cell count is not a very sensitive test of whether somebody's responded to antibiotics or not. And it's not going to change how you treat the patient, I don't think. Let's return to our patient. How do you suggest the GP might discuss the options with her? The patient may believe that this is an infection and the solution to that problem is antibiotics. The evidence is that, that in the majority of patients, antibiotics are not going to 
improve either the rate at which her symptoms get better uh, or her overall symptom improvement. So the GP has to explain to the patient that the natural course of this disease, so the natural course of the lower respiratory tract infection is that you will have symptoms for a median of three weeks, which is, a, which is surprising to a lot of patients who think that they're just going to get better in a week. Uh, and then explain to them that further causes of antibiotics are not going to increase or improve that recovery time, but do have the potential to cause antibiotic-related side effects. So that's all about the doctor-patient relationship and both taking on board the concerns that the patient has and also educating them about the natural history of acute cough and lower respiratory tract infections. Thank you, James. That's a very helpful rundown on how we ought or ought not investigate non-responding lower respiratory tract infection. I wonder if we might backtrack a little bit to talk about an interesting tangent. One of the interesting side issues that you raise in the paper is that although GPs are very much more likely to prescribe antibiotics to patients who have frankly purulent sputum, this may have no effect at all on, on outcome. This statement is based on a recent study published in the European Respiratory Journal, which was a a prospective study of over 3,000 patients around Europe in which the the authors looked at the the association of sputum purulence with response to antibiotic treatment. So they, they looked at groups of patients who reported having green or yellow sputum and compared their response to antibiotics in terms of symptom score resolution against patients who had clear sputum or no sputum at all and showed no difference in the rate of symptom resolution, which is surprising to a lot of people, including myself. So that's fertile ground for further research in primary care, isn't it? It certainly is. Mm. James, thank you very much for enlightening a topic that's actually harder than it looks to manage well in primary care. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with research looking at how difficult it is to see warning signs of suicidal behaviour. And we'll be finding out where climate change, security and health collide. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.